0: This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM.
1: From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School,
0: this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join stay succeed and lead in the workplace I'm your host Laura Zarrow, executive director of Wharton people analytics for today's show on the power of the purchase and how whether it's as entrepreneurs or shoppers we can all make the world a better place especially for women our phones are open here at Channel 132 on Sirius XM 844 Wharton that's 844-942-7866 and give us a ring we'd love to know What are your questions about shopping to make a difference? Have you found ways that you're using the power of the purchase? We'd really love to hear from you. My guest today believes that all of us can play a part in making our world a better place. Her former job at the State Department enabled her to travel and see the world the good and the bad, including conditions and treatment that vulnerable populations deal with and the damage to the environment that companies can do. So she started her own company to connect businesses and consumers to ethically made products around the world. She's also just published a book that tells her inspiring story and shares the many ways we as shoppers can contribute to positive change for the places and people that need it most. Jane Mossbacker Morris is the founder and CEO of To the Market and author of by the change you want to see, using your purchasing power to make the world a better place. I want to tell you just a little bit more about her because she really is amazing before we begin our conversation. Jane has one of those resumes that makes enormous sense when you read it backwards, as if her whole life was gearing up for what she does now. She's a term member on the Council of Foreign Relations, previously served as the Director of humanitarian Action for the McCain Institute for Institutional Leadership, where she managed the Institute's efforts to combat human trafficking. Prior to that, she worked in the U.S. Department of State's Bureau of Counterterrorism and in the Secretary's Office of Global Women issue. And that doesn't even scratch the surface. There's a lot more that she's done. But in particular, she's also worked at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and earned an MBA from Columbia and a Bachelor of Science in Foreign Service from Georgetown. So with that, let me say, Jane, welcome to Women at Work. Thank
1: you so much for having me. I'm
0: excited to talk to you. We're excited to have you, Jane. So tell me, when you, you know, we look backwards and it makes perfect sense as if you knew you were going to be what you knew what you were going to be when you grew up, when you enrolled in school. Was that the case? Did this, is this the life you envisioned?
1: Well, it totally cracked me up hearing you say that because I think if someone had told me in high school, or college, or even in uh, you know even middle school, that I might be working in the retail industry, I, I don't know if I would have laughed or cried, maybe a little <laughs> bit of both. But I can tell you, it was definitely not um, not what I was envisioning. I um, was originally hoping to be as as a young person uh, in musical theater. Really. Uh, Yes. Yes. Um, although, as I got a little bit older in high school, um, 9/11 happened, and it really put me in um, a different uh, mindset and put me on a different path of having a, a strong interest in terrorism and counterterrorism. Mm-hmm. So I ended up studying national security in in college, and then, of course, as you mentioned, my first job which started in college, was working in counterterrorism at the State Department. So retail was not on uh, my radar.
0: No matter how you slice it, because whether you were going to be a performing artist or help keep the world safe, retail didn't seem to factor into that. It did
1: not. And I actually worked two retail jobs over the summers in high school. And I, I have to say that it, it they weren't my favorite. Um, they were my favorite summer jobs it's you know working the floor of a retailer is tough people um, don't always treat you uh, as you would want to be treated and so it's it uh, cracks me up that, given that I, I didn't even have that great of ex- an experience, that here I am, you know, not only working in retail but uh, founding and running a company that, that works in this industry.
0: And uh, also, I think one of the things that we should point out is you are working in retail, but this is a very special kind of retail. Can you explain what through the through what to the market does?
1: Absolutely. So, to the market, our vision is really to change the way that retail manufacturing is done to create a better outcome for people, for the planet. And ultimately we think we can create better businesses. And what I mean by that is the retail industry and the fashion industry writ large is ripe with challenges. Mm -hmm. It is one of the most pollutive industries uh, in the world. And it also has real issues around labor exploitation. And my work around the world, spending time in countries, including in the United States, where I spent time with overlooked communities, I realized that there was so much untapped production capacity of products that were being made ethically that weren't making their way into stores. And I realized that there was an opportunity to better connect all of these ethical suppliers around the world with the brands, retailers and corporations based here in the United States, who are then able to ultimately offer that better product to their consumers, to their employees,
0: um, etc. I want to break that down a little bit, Jane, because it's it's a big concept to take in. And you put it beautifully, but I want to tease some of it apart. When you talk sure. about overlooked communities, who are you talking about? Who are we not seeing? And is it that we're not seeing them or is it that we're not taking care of them?
1: Well, it, it's both. And a lot of uh, a lot of the reason why I think we haven't taken care of them is because we didn't see them. So what's really interesting about the the manufacturing of uh, products that we today enjoy is that there's been a bit of a journey. And we trace this journey in the book, and it was so fascinating researching it, where um, we, we sort of were in a place that's very different than we are today, 100 years ago, where you and I might both have a handful, I mean, five max pieces of clothing in our closet and those pieces of clothing were very likely either stoned by our mother mm-hmm. or literally made by a seamstress down the street from us who we then saw, you know, at, uh, at church on Sunday or, you know, at sort of in the town square when we had an opportunity to walk around. So they were both, the makers of our products were both physically, and figuratively close to us. Mm -hmm. But as industrialization happened and globalization happened, so much more of the manufacturing of the products that we enjoy today have moved overseas. And in that process, we have really lost the connection between the maker and the product and us. And because of that, I think what unfortunately happened is that that lack of transparency allowed for exploitation to take place to a degree that we are now, as a a community, as a globe, becoming more aware of and now trying to actively fight against.
0: So tell me how you began to see that up close and personal, and in particular in the book. You, You really write a beautiful description of what you discovered when you went to Calcutta.
1: Well, I was working on labor exploitation and human trafficking for the McCain Institute. And I was doing a visit with Mrs. Cindy McCain in Calcutta, New Delhi. And we had on this specific trip um, spent time uh, walking through red light districts. We had an opportunity to visit a number of safe houses, which are places where trafficking victims are able to spend time and heal And then we ultimately had the opportunity to visit two organizations that were employing human trafficking survivors to produce products. And one of the groups was making sari blankets. Uh, Sari fabric is a traditional South Asian Mm -hmm. fabric. Um, And then the other cooperative that we visited was making screen-printed jute bags, the type you might find in something like a Whole Foods and it was such a stark impression for me, this idea that you can serve a community by employing them. And I also was able to witness what the dignity of work, especially in producing a product, really looks like. What does it look like for someone to be producing a product in a safe environment and um, being compensated fairly and um you know, how could I then scale that and make that type of manufacturer more accessible to the brands, retailers, and corporations here in the U.S., who I think are very eager to find these types of producers, but just have had a hard time finding them for a number of factors.
0: I want to take a step, half a step back. One of the things that you wrote about in the book that I found really interesting was talking about... Why are there so many women who are in the sex trade in these areas of the globe, even here in the United States, and it's not by will? And what is it about, how do they get to these safe houses? How do people step out of it? And What are the critical factors that these programs are providing that these women can't find on their own?
1: Well, I think what's very challenging around um, labor and sex trafficking is that the traffickers, so the people who are facilitating the exploitation, really focus on isolating the women. And really the women could be women, they could be girls, they could be boys, they Mm -hmm. could be men. But they isolate their victim, and they do that in a number of of ways. It can be physical isolation, um, it could be emotional isolation. So if someone is constantly telling you, you know, nobody cares about you, um, I'm the only one who cares about you. You can mm-hmm. never go back to your family. You are ashamed to your family. Then you can create this isolation, um, whether it's you know real or um, created you know through really emotional abuse. And what happens is it really wears down the mentality of the victims to a place where it's very hard for them to um, be in a mental place that they could quote escape. And even if they could, quote, escape, which some certainly have, um, it's very hard for them because oftentimes their resources are very limited because, in fact, their family might reject them because they feel like perhaps the honor of the family has been tarnished um, and the girl is no longer, quote, pure. Um, And so safe houses are a place where women and men are able to um, have some of these emotional and physical needs. Um, addressed as they are healing from a very traumatic experience.
0: Where does their capacity to control their own money come into play here?
1: Now, this is such a great question, especially um, given the topic that we're talking about women, women at work. One of the biggest and earliest lessons that put me on this path of ultimately creating to the market and really pivoted me from uh, being strictly focused on counterterrorism was I was traveling and working around the world on women's empowerment. And this is originally through the lens of how do we get more women to help fight terrorism? That was, you know, that was my sort of original focus area because I was working in counterterrorism. But what I learned is that if women do not have access to resources, and those resources can be inherited, they can be shared within the family, or they can be earned. But if they do not have access to these resources, they are ultimately not in full control of their own life, because they are then in a position where they are having to ask someone or something else permission to do things.
0: It's an incredibly powerful element um, of recognizing, the way you describe it, of recognizing that Individual agency to change your life can be stripped away from you in these multiple ways. And without money, you don't have, and like you said, whether it's inherited, earned, or shared, but particularly if you don't have it inherited, it's not shared, and all you have is the ability to earn, and you're a victim of sex trafficking, you don't get your own earned income. So you wind up working yet remaining impoverished. Yes. Yeah, it's kind of daunting. By the way, this is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and my guest today is Jane Mossbacker morris She's the CEO of To the Market and author of By the Change You Want to See. If at any point you'd like to join the conversation, we'd love to hear from you. Give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. So, Jane, knowing that you're, you're traveling around the world, you're seeing these communities, and you're seeing it sounds like two disconnects, that there are these communities, communities who are, um, whether they're enslaved or vulnerable, on, and often on you know lots of points on that spectrum, how did you connect the dots to figure out how to help them economically and thus free them from that spectrum or that cycle? Well,
1: there are a couple of pieces here. Um, one is that there are a number of growing what we call freedom businesses that are operating in the heart of communities that have the highest rate of exploitation or of labor and sex trafficking, that are going into these communities and specifically setting up shop to provide employment opportunities to these survivors. And so I started, given my work on human trafficking, engaging originally with that type of community. When I took a step back, what I learned was that there, were, there was a huge portion of the population that was operating in the developing world that was specifically women that were running some sort of business that was producing products, that was employing women that were just on the poverty line or were vulnerable to some form of exploitation because they were on the poverty line And realized that they too were not given um, the opportunity to be a part of the global marketplace because they had been overlooked um, as businesses, oftentimes because they were women-owned and operated. Mm. And so so we then, as a business, expanded our view to say, "Look, we're not just going to work with these hyper-vulnerable post-trauma communities. We're also going to look at women-owned and operated producers who have." just as good of a product, if not better than traditional factories, but who have not been taken seriously potentially by the retail manufacturing industry. And we want to change
0: that. So when you stepped into that, what did you do first?
1: Well, um, you know, first we wanted to test whether we could sell into corporations that um, had a more sort of traditional ideology. And what I mean by that is I I knew I could probably find really progressive corporations that would start buying product made by our suppliers, but I wanted to show that that the movement and the opportunity to make change through your supply chain was so much bigger than just a small set of hyper-progressive companies, and so we really went after traditional corporations and tried to convince them to start sourcing different types of category products. So it could be tote bags for conferences, Mm -hmm. could be end of year client gifts, whatever that might be, to start buying through to the market to have, you know, so that it would be product that was made by these women um, and ultimately was being purchased by these corporations. And what I found is, so many of the corporations that we pitched, if not all of them, said, "Oh wow, I am not only." getting the product that I was going to buy anyways from wherever my traditional source was, but I'm also getting a way better story and a way better impact with that same money that's already been allocated, why Why would I not do this? This is a no-brainer.
0: Absolutely. It's, so talk yeah. to us about that impact. I first discovered this um, through Connie Duckworth's work with Arzu, which I was delighted yes. to see you're a board member of. Um, So for those people that are not familiar, you know, who may be, you know, familiar with walking into a little shop, say on South Street here in Philadelphia or in their neighborhood, and they'll see items that are clearly made in other parts of the world that may have a tag on it that tells them by buying this item, you're doing good in a faraway place. What does that look like when it starts to add up and make the impact?
1: Well, I think... One of my favorite unlocks that I help people have is that a decision that may feel inconsequential to you. So you could be an office manager that's in charge of the company retreat, and your job is, among other things, to buy the Mm T-shirts for the company. And that might be 50 shirts. If you decide that you want to buy those 50 shirts through a supplier who is employing, let's say, vulnerable women in an ethical way, that 50 shirt order, which to you is just, oh, sure, like I will buy through you and not this you know, traditional supplier. I have seen on the ground how those little orders are the difference between school fees being paid or not, barrels of water being purchased or not. So it's these tiny things to us that end up having an impact on the quality of life of so many people that are impacted in the supply chain.
0: Jane, would you pause for a moment? Because I don't um, know if all of our listeners know what when we say school fees, a lot of people may think we're talking about private schools, but that's not what you're talking about at all.
1: Yeah, I'm talking about um, basic, basic fees. Fees to cover a child in a developing country, let's say, being able to attend um, the you know the only local school that might exist, which could be public, could be you know quasi-private, um, but this is literally the difference between your kid getting to stay in school or not,
0: right, or not receiving a formal education at all, exactly. And barrels of water, give a little context for that. Barrels
1: of water, yeah. So so um, places like Haiti, um, unfortunately, water is not. Um, provided and you have to buy your water. And so you literally buy barrels of water for your family, for your community, your neighborhood, et cetera. And, um, you know, someone has to pay for them.
0: Right. So what? So, so those 50 yeah. T-shirts that are providing what feel like small amounts of money to us are actually life-changing dollars on the ground in places like Haiti, especially after the hurricane.
1: Exactly. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it our our dollars go um, a long way, certainly in developing countries. But even here in the U.S., where to the market has suppliers, when you're targeting your spend with businesses that may often be overlooked, it still is making a difference. And we talk about in the book, for example, that you know I care about women's empowerment, but my husband cares deeply about supporting local businesses and being you know having been a small business to the market when we started i i know what it feels like to check your your um your financial statements every single day to look at every single order (laughs) that came in and so to that mom and pop grocer that you might decide you're gonna buy from every other grocery run it's the same concept to you. It's sort of like, yeah, okay, fine. I'll every other trip, I'll make sure I'll go to the small and pop grocer. But to them, it's a handful of people making that decision that might be the difference between them staying in business or not.
0: Yeah, it, it changes everything. It does. This is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. My guest today is Jane Mosbacher-Morris. She's the CEO of To the Market and author of Buy the Change You Want to See. Um, we'd love to hear your stories of how you are driving your shopping decisions. And tell us, do, are you aware of the power of your purchases? And if so, how are you using them to make your values become real in the world around you? So give us a call. We'd love to hear from you. That's 1-844-WARTON, 844 942 7866. Six. So Jane, you're bringing up an interesting point that I want to explore a little bit, which is what are the values that drive the way to the market has developed and the way that you see opportunities in this space for all of us? Because it, you know, I loved reading in the book the story of how it's through your work traveling internationally that you saw this huge ripple effect that you could create by, by connecting us to these makers and creators in other parts of the world. But now you're also talking about things right here at home, local businesses, businesses in the United States, and a core set of values that seem to be imbued in the work that you're doing now. So talk to me about how you see the interconnection of those values and how you identified them.
1: Well, for to the market in particular, we are focused on leveraging the purchasing power of businesses here in the United States to help empower suppliers that traditionally have not had the opportunity to service a big business. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is you and women, I think, recently uh, released a statistic that said that something like less. Than two percent of of contracts given out by Fortune 500 went to women-owned businesses.
0: Less than two percent.
1: Mm-hmm. That's I criminal. Tiny, tiny percentage. And so, for th- to us, that's an example of a uh, overlooked supplier. So, to the market's vision, given that we operate in retail is making sure that we are bringing our clients apparel, accessories, and home goods makers that are new suppliers to them, that are representative of communities that have traditionally been overlooked. Now, the thesis behind the business, this idea that you can buy the change, that you can align your purchasing decisions with your values, is even bigger than to the market because it's much more than just retail. It's everything that that we as people and as individual consumers and we as individuals working within businesses have the power to spend money on. And that could be, who am I hiring to cater? Who is my, mm-hmm. uh, my lawyer that I've decided to use? And, you know, everybody's values are different. So it could be that you decide that you want to support uh, vet- veteran uh, business owners. Um, Or it could be that you want to support, um, you know, a women-owned and operated business. Everybody's values are different, but it's this idea of saying, wait, I can vote with my wallet. It does matter how I spend my money and who I spend it with.
0: And so if we can grasp that concept and have it drive our decisions, it's really with every dollar that we spend, we have these opportunities over and over again to make a difference and to drive change.
1: Definitely. And I love that there is so much conversation around our civic duty to vote and to be involved in the outcome of elections and getting involved with uh, our government at, at, at different levels, but I also remind people that you can vote every single day. Literally, every time you spend <laughs> right. money, you are making a decision about what type of world you want.
0: And, and it's also a reminder that the places where we spend our money has an impact, and it gives us both power and responsibility.
1: Yes, and I love this idea that the unlock that, that we talked about, this idea that, gosh, I don't have to go – Move to a different country or go on a big volunteer service trip to make a difference, I can decide that I'm going to spend. You know, when I buy coffee for the office, that it's going to be fair trade certified. (laughs) And that's going to be my impact. And you know what? It does make a difference. It
0: absolutely does. And you know what we need to do right now is take a short break. But we're going to be back and we're going to talk more about how we can drive this every day. I'm Laura Zarrow and this is Women at Work here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. We'll be back in a minute with Jane Mossbacker morris You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio. Here again is Laura Zaro. Welcome back to Women at Work on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. And my guest for today is Jane Mossbacker morris the founder and CEO of a really amazing, powerful company called To The Market. She's also the author of Buy the Change You Want to See, Using Your Use Your Purchasing Power to Make the World a Better Place. Jane, welcome back to Women at Work. Thank you. So before the break, um, in our first half hour, you really helped me understand the framework of how you started to the market, what the power is of it, of connecting um, communities around the world where economic opportunity is life-changing with the power of our dollars to make that difference all the way over there. Um, And it, as I was reading the book, I was really thinking about How, even as a consumer my whole life, I've been struggling with this idea. How can I, A, make a difference, and how can I, B, not do harm? I remember the way I became aware of it was what kind of tuna fish was I buying? And if I bought a different Mm. kind of tuna fish, was it a form of a boycott? And could we actually get the company to change their fishing practices? So before we talk about all the ways that we can use our dollars for good, can you help anchor us in... Where can these things go wrong and what should we be thinking about as consumers?
1: Well, as far as where things can go wrong, you know, everybody has a different approach for how they choose to communicate what they care about. So I feel really strongly about using my platform to advocate and help to shed light on businesses that I think are doing a great job to make the world a better place. Um, Other people might have a different approach where they might take an activist lens and feel like they want to do more investigative um, work and shed light on issues that they think are problematic. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know if I've seen um, an effort sort of gone wrong where (laughs) I... Okay. from a consumer standpoint, where I can say I think things have gone wrong from a business standpoint is when efforts to pursue good are done in a way that are inauthentic or disconnected Mm. from the core business. And not to say that it's particularly harmful on the ground, but um, what I mean by that is I think that consumers are more tuned in than ever, and because of that, we're perhaps more suspicious than ever. And so when we hear companies talk about what they're doing to make the world a better place, either for people, for the planet, or both, if it feels very misaligned for their core business, I think it sometimes really falls flat.
0: Um. It's true. It does, and it's disappointing. It feels disingenuous, and we kind of lose mm-hmm. our faith in the process. And I think part mm-hmm. of what I was so taken by in reading the book and hearing. A, your stories in the descriptions of these various businesses was that it, it helped bring that hope that I have back to life to see that there are these models that are not disingenuous, it is not false advertising, and they're not accidentally hurting the or the very communities that they're trying to serve. Um, also, it made me aware, particularly, by the way, I'd like to recommend the website to the market.com. and I went and took a look at the PDF that's on the site, and there's this wonderful slide, um, Learn Your Impact. And it's where you demonstrate the uh, the UN Sustainable Development Goals about why being eco-friendly made by women and made in the U.S. matters. Um, Could you talk to us a little bit about how these goals were determined and how you're approaching them with To the Market?
1: Well, To the Market's vision is around ethical manufacturing of products and When we say ethical, we're really focused on both environmental impact and the impact on people. And both of those are very loaded, um, (laughs) in many ways very subjective. Um, But what we have tried to do is define as best we can, what does it mean to, to create and support businesses that are honoring the people who are in them that are, are employing them in a way that is safe um, and that is dignified and is fair. And then from an environmental standpoint, um, again, because retail manufacturing in the fashion industry is one of the most pollutive in the world, we really focus on how can we reduce the waste that is created in the manufacturing process, which is a primary contributor to um, why the fashion industry is so pollutive is that there is just a tremendous amount of waste that is created. Um, I think it's something like uh, some huge portion of, um, of clothes that are produced by brands and retailers are ultimately not bought and end up in a landfill. And, um, Just thinking about how can we be responsible manufacturers, um, what does that look like for us as a business is something that um, certainly comes into play as we think about our own environmental footprint.
0: And also, isn't there a connection between um, these environmentally dangerous practices and how they affect the people on the ground who are working in these factories and living in these communities?
1: Absolutely. So, people are unquestionably tied tied to the environmental impact. So, waste creation, um, certainly uh, the creation and proliferation of landfills, um, these often uh, exist in low-income communities. Um, when they do go into a community, this includes in the United States, and in fact, especially in the United States where you do have such disparities in um, income levels in certain zip codes, when a when a landfill does go into an area, it has a very negative impact on housing prices. And um, similarly, in in sort of manufacturing facilities, um, there have been a lot of challenges around um, chemical waste and the impact that that chemical waste has had on um, access to clean water. So the environmental and social pieces are, are very tightly um,
0: aligned. Okay, so it's one of the things, I, I had understood that to be the case, and I love that in, the, in your catalog and in learning how you can make purchases that align with your values, one of the things that you spelled out is if eco-friendly matters to you, you can look for certain symbols in the catalog to know that these products um, are indeed eco-friendly as measured by these standards. So Mm -hmm. it's, it's not just the benefit that this aligns with stuff that you care about, but it's actually held to an external standard, right? It is. Absolutely. Okay. So now let's talk about for those of us that want to get on board. We want to use the power of the purse in a very uh, personal kind of way. How can we shape our purchasing decisions to make a difference? Um, We know that there are ways that we can do it personally, but it sounds like where we get real impact is when we bring it into our organizations, where we can Mm -hmm. leverage the budgets that we have. Like, you know, I run a research center, we run an annual conference. Well, I'm not usually a big fan of swag. I like to give a little notebook, maybe a pen. Even things like notebooks can be made in these cooperatives and through the supply chain that you've created, right?
1: That's right. I mean, when we look at the procurement budgets of businesses, big and small, it, it's sort of like peeling back an onion. You start with, um, you know, just looking at your desk, and you're like, "Oh my gosh!" You're wait, i bought our company has bought mugs with the logo on it, and pins with the logo on it, and business cards, and That you know, you keep peeling back the onion and you realize there's probably closets full of tote bags with the logo on it and T-shirts with the logo on it. I mean, we as a country, the sort of promotional products, corporate gifting industry is actually a $21 billion industry a year.
0: Oh, my God. So it's $21 billion. $21 billion. So that when not used well, often winds up in the trash.
1: That's Right. And oftentimes it is not used well. I mean, how many times have you been given, you know, a, a sort of USB charger with someone's logo on it that ended up, you know, either in the trash or left in the hotel room or at the bottom of your purse and then it collected dust and then um, it eventually went in the
0: trash. Oh, please. So. I'll walk into the door into the door of a conference site and I'm handed a tote bag. Um, and in it is a beer cozy. I don't need a beer cozy. Yeah, it's um, the the branded product space, which
1: again is so big, has really been, we as as sort of like a culture, as Americans, we love to put our name on things. And there's nothing wrong with that. We have a whole (laughs) chapter about customization and what is something that's truly custom mean. But because of this desire and love for customization, we often overlook whether we're making something that's of Significant pragmatic value, mm-hmm. so meaning handing out the you know broken USB cords or the, <laughs> right, the, yeah. the, the power chargers that don't fit our phone or might blow up our phone or you know whatever it may be, <laughs> and we just think oh well it's only a dollar fifty, so that will be the product that I buy and give away instead of saying hey. If this has my name on it, I don't want it to end up in the trash. Mm. It should say something about me and my business. And I want people not only to keep it, but to use it and to think positive things about my business. And so really rethinking that sort of branded product space is, is something that I'm beginning to see the inklings around, but I encourage the listeners to really ask yourselves hey, if I'm in charge of buying anything for my organization and I could be in a nonprofit, for-profit, university, whatever it may be, I should really make sure that this product is reflective of the values that I espouse.
0: Well, I have to say... I like to think that we're working towards the values I espouse every day here on Women at Work, and this is Women at Work on Business Radio powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM Channel 132. And I'm talking with the really extraordinary Jane Mossbacker who is the CEO of To the Market and author of Buy the Change You Want to See. Um, we'd love to hear from you. What are the purchasing decisions you're making? And can Jane give you some advice about how to drive those decisions to both be maxful, maximally impactful, and also reflect you and your brand in the ways that really matter to you. Give us a call. You can reach us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. So, Jane, let's drill down to this idea of how we make these choices and You know, one of the things that people who work in corporations are facing is that there are approved vendors, there are suppliers, there's the catalog that's on their desk or the link that their business administrator sent to them. If people want to find other ways of spending this $21 billion, um, where should they start?
1: Well, I think even before jumping on the internet and and doing some, some power Googling, I would say um, start by asking or, or researching um, what are the values of the organization? Have we as a business made or a, a nonprofit, whatever it may be, have we made commitments to do things like reduce our waste output by a certain calendar year? That's a very popular uh, mm. commitment that I've seen from Fortune 500. You know, we want to be zero waste by 2020. Um, or I've seen other businesses say um, we are making the commitment to uh, empower women, and that might manifest as us having more women in leadership, or um, you know, recruiting more women um, in our entry level. So really looking and saying, okay, what are the values of my organization? And by the way, if they haven't been stated, um, helping to come up with them. So really asking yourself, what do I could you could be a solopreneur. You can have a business that you run by yourself and really saying to yourself, hey, what do I care about? What do I stand for? You're never too – it's never too early to to set those values. And then once you've decided on what those values are, then thinking about how you can incorporate those values into um, the products that you feel like you need um, to run your business. And those values – yeah. And those but,
0: values can extend to a range of things. Is it that you want things that are produced locally? Do you want um environmentally responsible things? Do you want things that encourage people to learn? There are all different ways these values can manifest, right? Yes,
1: there are so many businesses. And thankfully, the internet has made it easier than ever before to truly pair um, words that could be value related with a category of products you may need, <laughs> and um, I mean, I would literally say, you know, start with the power of Google, and then if you know, if there are contracts that um, are in place, as oftentimes there are, there are quote approved vendors. I have seen um, some of, of my um, my colleagues who read the book or um, had heard about you know our our thesis of a business really be able to make change in the procurement strategies of their business by bringing this concept to light to either um, a sustainability uh, head or even a marketing head and saying, guys, if we can get product that costs about the same, but we're getting a way better story, why would we not do this? And when people realize that there is strong ROI, that it's not just about values, but it's actually good for your business, then there, you can you can really begin to see light bulbs going off and changes being
0: made, right? Because it reflects your business's values in how these things, in what form these gifts, these products, these all these different forms of merchandising take. Um, so it's not just that you've provided the tool, the message, the gift, the thank you, but it on its own can reflect what matters to the company and then by engaging with organizations like to the market or let's say how we buy our coffee um, you have the chance Mm -hmm. to expand the impact the the way that those values um, get become actionable in the world so talk to me about coffee as I gather it you're a fan I'm a fan we drink a fair amount of it how can we make better decisions about what we're drinking
1: I love coffee. Um, (laughs) I am drinking coffee right now. Um, I am always drinking coffee. I feel like I have it on IV drip um, (laughs) attached to my body. Coffee is such an exciting category because coffee has the ability to be the
0: first
1: sustainable crop and even sustainable commodity potentially in the world. What I love about coffee among a million things, is that it probably has the most transparent supply chain out of any category of product that I can think of. And I actually largely attest that to the early work of Starbucks. And what I mean by that is Starbucks's focus on connecting the growers, and the story of the growers to us drinkers so that you and I might walk into a store and say, you know, I see the, the grower of this coffee or a coffee that's carried here on the wall. I'm gonna read, I'm gonna pick up a bag and read the back of it. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna learn about this coffee farm. And I'm now going to start identifying different flavors associated with my coffee. Meaning I might now say, oof, I really like the Jamaican blend um, from Starbucks. Or I really like um, the, the taste that comes from the Guatemalan highlands. And that is something that um, didn't really exist even 10 years ago. Coffee was just coffee in a
0: can. So you mean um, by the, the way that coffee has become in a way more sophisticated and helped us become more sophisticated in how we approach it. Um, isn't just that it's like wine in that we can enjoy it in new new complex ways, but that transparency that you're talking about is telling us that that cup of coffee that we're getting, we know where in the world, literally where in the world it came from. Yes. And so that we can also, by knowing where it came from, that means we can consider the impact that it has on that region?
1: Yes. So what's so great, about us having a better understanding of where our coffee is grown and who is growing it is that that connection has led us to be more open to pay more and to pay more for things like fair trade labor or shade grown coffee, which is essentially coffee that's not um, grown with clear cutting land. So as our taste as a community have evolved, we have become more willing to pay for more, quote, gourmet coffee, and that willingness has allowed for coffee companies around the world to start supporting and buying beans that are made in in these ways that have such a better um, impact on both the environment and the coffee farmers who are growing the coffee.
0: It's just incredible. And it's also a testimony that once you create, even though it's something that, to be honest, it's driven by, you know, us coffee fanatics out there and the fact that we really do, we're learning about coffee and learning to enjoy it more. But the ripple effect is a much more compassionate type of global business um, that we're willing to pay for and proudly can support. And we can even be aware of it because of that transparency. Exactly. Okay. So one of the things that you wrote about in the book in various cases is, you know, there's this way that as consumers we can be conscious of this. Um, as purchasers, we can expand the impact by what decisions we're making for our companies and where we're putting those organizational dollars. But you also talked about how you started in this business, and also you tell the story of um, Papillon Enterprises and the Apparent mm-hmm. Project. And, and, and so I wonder, if for the people out there who are thinking, I want to do more than just make a difference with my coffee, and I want to do more with, than just the swag that I purchased for my company. I actually want to get in the game in a big way. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you start? How did the Apparent Project start? What are the first steps for people who want to start doing this?
1: There are so many amazing founders around the world who have started organizations um, under the radar of uh, the press that are truly transforming generations of lives. And there's a woman named Shelly who is an American woman who, uh, as a family, they decided that they wanted to adopt a child and they wanted to adopt this child from Haiti. And she and her family went down to Haiti to adopt this child. And when they got there, what they found was that a significant portion of the children that were in the group homes or orphanages in Haiti actually had parents that were still alive. And what had happened is that these parents felt like they could no longer afford their children or could never afford their children, and they had They thought that if they gave them up to an orphanage or a group home, that these children would have better lives. Now, in some cases, that's arguable. In many cases, um, they were sadly, um, these children were now living in really, really dire circumstances and in certain cases um, beginning to be exploited. And so what Shelley decided to do instead of uh, taking a child, adopting a child and moving back to the United States is, she wanted to start a business to help employ these parents who are at that point of vulnerability that they might have to give up their child because they could no longer afford them. And so she started a business called Papion Enterprises that employs to this day something like 300 parents. Wow. Yeah, and it is an amazing. The amazing products are beautiful. The products are beautiful. If you have an opportunity to visit Papillon, which is in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, they not only have great products that you can visit and watch the makers creating it, but they also have an amazing cafe. They have a, uh, a brick oven, and I've eaten the pizza, and I uh, <laughs> think the pizza is amazing. So um, she started a number of sort of subsidiary companies, but all with the mission of helping to create economic empowerment for these communities, and um, it you know, it really has done so much more than donations ever really could.
0: It's an amazing um, example of how something that started with, A, um, the willingness to volunteer and step up and do something difficult, and in her case, it was adopt a child. In your case, there were times in working as a volunteer, you became aware of these things, and bringing with it cultural empathy not judging but listening to what's the reality on the ground that you may not understand because of where you come from and then bringing with that a kind of business mindset of how to be entrepreneurial it's like you could change the world with this Mm -hmm. it's really just amazing jane um so if people want to get involved um either working for your organization, um, getting involved with these organizations around the world. Are there places people can go if they want to go there, be on the ground, and get a look for themselves?
1: Well, there are so many organizations that are eager for volunteers. And um, so for those who can't necessarily quit a job and and have uh, a pivot in their career path, so many great social enterprises are looking for volunteers. And oftentimes, um, the volunteer needs um, manifest and can align with maybe the skill sets that you already have. So when we think of volunteering, we might think of, um, you know, going and, and, you know, working on the ground and, and, you know, holding holding these children and um, being, you know, in these group homes. But oftentimes these organizations need the same services that any other business or nonprofit needs. They might need accounting help. They might need help with photography. They might need help with um, any, you know, legal questions. So there
0: really Um, is a vast amount of opportunity for each of us to step up and make a difference. Endless. Endless opportunity. I could talk to you all day, but unfortunately, we're running out of time. So thank you for joining us. Thank
1: you for having me.
0: And for people who want to learn more about Jane, go to tothemarket.com. I so appreciate you all listening today. If you have a question about anything you heard today, email us at businessradio at seriousxm.com. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at BizRadio132 and me at Laura's Arrow. Special thanks to my guest, Jane Mossbacker Morris. I'd also like to thank my beloved producer Patty Hall, our fantastic sound engineer Jeff Simmons. I'm Laura's Arrow, and you've been listening to Women at Work on Business Radio powered by the Wharton School here on Sirius. SXM 132. Go out there, people. When Make a difference. Use the power of the purse. To hurt inside And we'll shine Yes, we'll
1: shine We will shine We will shine